I'd ask that if you have your Bibles, you turn to uh, the letter of 2 John. Uh, the easiest way to get there will be just to turn to the end of your Bibles and then uh, flip a few pages uh, before the book of Revelation, which is the last book in the Bible, uh, to 2 John. It's just one page, so uh, you've got to pay attention or you'll miss it. Last time I had the opportunity to preach, I looked at the uh, book of Philemon with you, and in continuing with the theme on uh, the shortest books of the Bible, Second uh, John certainly uh, fits that bill, uh, as it's just one chapter, and so we're going to be looking at the uh, whole thing together. Second John, the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. From God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And this is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. That's for the Lord's help now. Father in heaven, as we open your word and as the sermon is preached, we desire to proclaim Christ Jesus as Lord. And so, Lord, to do that, we ask that you would give clarity, that you would help us understand these words in truth, and that your spirit would be at work to take uh, the, the things that are said, the truth that is to be uh, communicated, and that, Lord, you would take that and that you would use that to, to not only shape our thinking, but to shape our attitudes and to shape our lives. This we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. The uh, television show American Idol presents, perhaps in cartoonish form, the challenge of our text this morning, because I think it's a show that shows us our tendency to uh, separate or pin, uh, pit against each other truth and love. Now, if you've watched any of the show's edition episodes, you'll have witnessed the painful fruits of trying to love without truth, right? So some poor soul comes striding in uh, to their edition only to let out the types of screeching sounds that would make the family dog sound like Pavarotti, right? The, the tragedy is that 
they ended up here and no family, no friends seemingly told them that they had zero musical ability. Now, on the other hand, you've got the biting criticisms of Simon Cowell and the other judges. Like this comment, if you'd lived 2,000 years ago and sung like that, I think they would have stoned you. And there are more. The judges often speak the truth, but they do so in the most brutal and unloving way possible. Now, the show shows for us, I think, in humorous form, our tendency to divorce truth and love from each other. And we can sense this challenge as friends, as spouses, as, as parents, as ministry leaders. We can sense this challenge as, as churches and, and just as, as Christians generally. Maybe we find ourselves gravitating toward one more than the other. Or maybe you're wondering, does being loving mean that I have to sacrifice truth or vice versa? Or maybe am I supposed to look for some middle ground between the two, taking a little truth, a little love, and finding some sort of happy compromise between the two? But in this letter, John tells us that for Christians, love and truth must always go together. They must not be separated. And, John may, or, and God makes this point, rather, uh, for us through John's letter by an appeal, a definition, and an application. John appeals to Christians to walk in love. And then he says that love is characterized by obedience to the truth. And then John gives us a specific application from the fact that love and truth are always meant to go together. So our first point from this passage is that we are to walk in love. Now, there are a couple of things that we need to note about this letter before we look at it uh, more closely. First, this letter was written by the Apostle John, uh, who was one of the 12 original followers of Jesus, uh, and he wrote it toward the end of, end of the first century. So by this time, John is he's a, an old man. He's a, a mature, well-seasoned uh, pastor in the early church. And John writes this short letter to a sister church. We see elsewhere in Scripture, sometimes the church referred to as the bride of Christ, using feminine language. Well, here John refers to the church as the elect or chosen lady and to her children. By that, he's referring to uh, the church's members. So, whereas 1 John was written sort of like a, a, a sermon, and 3 John is written to a specific individual, Gaius, 2 John is written as an, uh, a letter from an old pastor to a congregation whom he knows, whom he loves, verse 1, whom he's worked for, verse 8, and whom he hopes, hopes to visit, verse 12. And John writes to this church to encourage them, but also to warn them. From verse 4, it's apparent that John had, had crossed paths with some of uh, the members of this sister congregation, and, and that had greatly encouraged him. It encouraged him because these believers were devoted to the Lord. They weren't sort of casual or, or flippant uh, believers. They were committed to walking in God's truth and obeying God's commands. I rejoiced greatly, John writes, to find some of your children, meaning the church's members, walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. Now, I read a story recently of a former Muslim named Kamal in North Africa. And he had heard the gospel uh, preached on uh, satellite TV, and he became a worshiper of Jesus. 
And so he would uh, pray in the mosque because he did not know any other Christians. He was not aware of, of any other churches. But one day, Kamal was in a cafe and his waiter greeted him, not with the customary salam or peace, uh, but he great, greeted him with peace and grace. And Kamal's words uh, or ears perked up at hearing this Christian word because it turned out this man, his waiter, was a, a Christian. Can you imagine Kamal's joy to find another person who believed the gospel as he did? When, when he, he was the only Christian that he knew, suddenly here's someone else pointed in the same direction, loving Jesus like he did. Well, this is how John felt, not because he was alone or the only believer, but uh, he, he felt this way toward these believers and to the rest of the church because the truth of Jesus was in them. He had joy because of them. He had love uh, toward them. John says that he loves them because the truth, that is Christ, his word, his spirit is found in these believers. And it's not just John who feels this affection, but he says, all who know Christ feel this way about you. Now, in his first letter, John explains this point further when he says in 1 John 5, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So those who trust in Jesus have been born of God, and because of God's love toward us, we've come to experience new life, spiritually speaking. And now, because of that, we love God. And because we love God, we will love those whom God loves. So God loves us so that we now love him, and because we love him, we love those whom he loves. This is the constant drumbeat in John's first letter. If the love of God in Jesus has transformed our hearts, we will love our fellow Christians. And so John writes to this church to encourage them not just to believe the right things and to live the right way, but to love one another, to love your fellow Christians, not just as an abstract concept, but as a definite reality in word and deed. Now here John says, I'm not saying anything new, He's just repeating a point that in his first letter, he's said in chapters 2 and 3 and 4 and 5. And even then, John is only repeating the teaching that he's heard from Jesus as Jesus taught to his disciples. This is my commandment, Jesus said, that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus' own example of sacrificial love is the standard. As he laid down his life for us, so we ought to give our lives in service for others. The second thing that John wants us to see in this short letter is that we are called to walk in truth. Because at this point, we might be tempted to think the, uh, that John the Apostle sounds a little bit like John Lennon the Beatle. Nothing you can make that can't be made. No one you can save that can't be saved. Nothing you can do, but you can learn how to be you in time it's easy all you need is love. Maybe, rather than being so rigid and legalistic, we just need to realize we are called to love one another, to be compassionate, to be tolerant, to be benevolent, good things. But for argument's sake, let's assume for a moment that we're to take this approach, that all we need is love. We need to ask then, what is love? I think it's an important question. 
And it's one that often goes without a clear answer. Because it's an article of the modern secular creed that we see on our lawn signs that love is love. It's a definition repeated throughout the culture, promoted by our politicians. But this idea that love is love, the, the definition is about as helpful as saying that the speed of light is the speed of light. It tells us nothing. But what I think it's trying to get at is that, uh, that love is whatever I choose it to be. If I want to love this person in that way, then that's up to me. Love, our culture says, is whatever I choose to make it. But according to this way of thinking, love is entirely subjective. And ultimately, that means that love is meaningless. John would say that this is nonsense. And so should you if you're a Christian. Because John tells us elsewhere a most remarkable thing. John says, God is love. Meaning that one of God's many perfections is that he is love. God was, he is, he always will be perfect love. God is love in all of its fullness. It's not a part of who he is. It is, it's who he is. It's exactly who he is. Just as he is holiness, he is justice, he is truth. And because God is love, it means that our definition of love can't be plastic. Love can't just be expressed however I want it to be. It's not just a feeling or an attitude that's sort of nebulous. There's an objective standard by which we can measure what love is. So if God is love, true love can't just run contrary to God's uh, 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 character. It can't run contrary to God's commands. Our tendency is to define God uh, by what we think love is sometimes. We start with our notion of love and then we sort of project that back onto God. But this is backwards. God's message in the Bible is quite the opposite. We must not define God by what we think that love is, but we need to define love by who we understand God to be. Love is determined by who God is. So John can say in verse 6, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. John makes a similar statement in, in his first letter too, in chapter 5. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Now you realize, of course, what an unpopular thing it is to say this. Not only is John saying that we're not free to define love for ourselves, but he's saying that God has defined love and it consists in this, that we keep his commandments. This means that love can never be expressed apart from God's commands. Love never encourages or promotes disobedience to what God has said. Love always commends obedience. It's never pitted against it. This week I saw quite a a terrible cartoon online. The cartoon had a, a picture of Jesus, which was its first mistake, and he's got his arm around this, this rainbow-colored uh, sheep, and, and his hand uh, is on a, a white sheep that's, that's nearby. And the white sheep says in protest to Jesus having his arm around the rainbow-colored sheep, but the verses to which the cartoon Jesus replies, love over verses. Right? The cartoon's suggesting a, a sort of common sentiment in our culture that there may be times and places where we'll have to choose love over Bible verses. 
or love over obedience. But this fails to understand God's definition of what love is. Love is shown through obedience. It's shown through generosity and through kindness. It's shown through a commitment to sexual purity and through pursuing uh, true worship and encouraging rest and encouraging working hard and exhibiting self-control and guarding your speech and whatever other commands apply. Now, a few qualifications perhaps are needed. This doesn't mean that the loving thing to do is always and immediately to confront people's sin. The Bible tells us elsewhere that love covers a multitude of sins. So sometimes where, love, where sin is not harmful to the relationship or harmful to others, as the offended party, we can choose to cover or absorb the cost of that sin. And wisdom often requires that we take care in, in, in uh, when we confront someone or how we have such a conversation. We should also acknowledge that obedience can be expressed in brutal and unloving ways at times. Though we might be rightly applying the Bible, we can do it in a way that's harsh and insensitive. But the point that we need to get is that, yes, we must love our fellow Christians. We must. But this love must also consist in in an obedience to the truth. To walk in truth, we need to walk in love. To walk in love, we need to walk in in the truth. So if you're asked to give a counsel to a fellow Christian, right, you need to earnestly seek to help them apply the truth of God's word uh, to their situation. We need to do this with patience and, and with, with kindness. We should make sure we're listening to, to understand uh, them well. But we need to strive to lovingly speak the truth to them, even if we know it will not be well received. The Bible avoids an overly simplistic dichotomy or or separation of these two things, love and truth. It's not love or truth. It's not compassion or obedience. It's always both and. Truth and, and love are wed together in the Bible. And what God has joined together, we shouldn't separate. But this brings us to our third point, John's application. Because love and truth go together, lines need to be drawn. Now, John has good reason to exhort his readers to love one another by walking in the truth. For many deceivers, John writes, have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. So it's important that the church holds on to truth and love together because there are those who distort the truth and who seek to lead people away from the truth. So these men and women in in John's day, they were once part of the church's fellowship, but they had since forsaken the apostles' teaching about who Jesus, Jesus is. So John speaks about them as well in, in uh, 1 John 2, 19. He calls them antichrists, meaning they're against Christ. They're not simply those who reject Jesus, but they're those who oppose Jesus and distort the truth about Jesus. These deceivers or antichrists were those who had once confessed Christ, but they'd since departed from him. They've they've gone out uh, from us because they were not of us, John says elsewhere. And verse 9 suggests that these people had run past the teaching of the apostles, which suggests that they, they thought that they knew better, that they could improve upon what the apostles had said, that they could progress past it. They were edgy teachers. They knew better. 
Now, these deceivers were likely traveling teachers, which was something that was relatively common at the time, right? Paul did something similar, traveling from place to place, speaking, giving public addresses. Only in this case, these people were teaching a false Christ. Sure, they spoke a lot about Jesus. Uh, They believed that Jesus was divine, that he was God. They liked Jesus, they would have said. But this was part of the deception, For all the while, they were denying that Jesus had come in the flesh, that Jesus had truly become a man, and that even now he's bearing our humanity in heaven, right? What we call the incarnation. They could not confess, as we do in the creed, that for us and for our salvation, the Son of God came down from heaven. He was incarnate by the Holy Spirit and and, uh, of the Virgin Mary, and he was made man, truly, fully man, an essential doctrine to our Christian faith. They rejected the apostles' teaching that in Jesus we have a mediator, someone who is, is one of us, who took our place as he hung upon the cross, and that he was our mediator as he rose from the grave, as, as one of us, that we might rise with him. Right? This is the apostolic gospel, and they rejected it. They distorted it. And so John says in verse 10, don't welcome these people into your home or give them greeting. The principle here is this, that because we should walk in truth and love, we should not partner with or promote those who distort the truth about Jesus. So to provide a a place, a warm bed for these false teachers uh, was to support them and enable them in their uh, gospel distorting work. To greet them or or uh, would show some sort of acceptance for these uh, teachers, these deceivers. Now you might be asking yourself, does this mean I shouldn't be hospitable uh, to people who are of other religious traditions? Or can I not be friends with someone who's not a Christian? Well, no. You should be hospitable and pursue friendships with people who are not Christian. Jesus did. John's not talking here about unbelieving people or, or people about uh, people who uh, 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 worship other religions. He's speaking specifically here about deceivers and those who corrupt the truth, about false teachers. So maybe a modern-day equivalent would be uh, Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, right? because such people distort the teaching about the person and work of Jesus. They're enemies of the gospel of Christ. Or maybe you're asking, but didn't Jesus tell us to love our enemies? Yes, he did on the Sermon on the Mount. He he told us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And so we should. We should uh, should lovingly pray for such people. But in the same sermon, Jesus also goes on to say, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Love doesn't, doesn't mean that we're not discerning or that we don't draw lines. Or maybe you're thinking, does this mean that I can't work alongside such a person or participate in in any sort of common causes with them? Can I be on the parent-teacher association with them or serve in the condo association? No, I'm not. That's not what I'm saying. John's principle here is that we should avoid anything that seems to support, promote, or approve of serious distortions of the gospel. So there might be places in the, partic- in the public realm, uh, places where we can, can be involved in causes of common concern. 
But the point is that anytime there's that type of cooperation, it shouldn't enable or support a distortion or blurring of the gospel message. But setting aside these questions, these qualifications, the point we need to grasp is this. If we're to follow in the teaching of the apostles, to follow in the teaching of the Bible, if we're to walk in truth and love, then we must be able to draw lines, to clearly distinguish truth from error. Now, this is a very unpopular thing to say today, to say, that's not what the Bible says, or that's wrong, or to say, if that's what you believe, then you're not with us, right? We'd much rather have a conversation or a dialogue, but the apostle says, watch yourselves. Do not receive them. Do not greet them. Since love and truth go together, it requires lines be drawn. So how might the apostles' warnings apply to us today? Well, one application we should take is that we should take great care in what is being preached from our pulpits, taught in our classes, and discussed in our group ministries to make sure that it's consistent with the apostolic teaching. Right? We need to be uh, diligent to make sure that we are holding fast to the truth that we've received in the Bible. We should also be discerning about ministries, missionaries, and causes we support. Now, this was a principle that played a, an important role in the foundation of our own denomination. Right? Some Presbyterian missionaries were teaching that you didn't need to have faith in Jesus in order to be saved. But if love and truth go together, then we must be able to say clearly that such teachings are untrue and because they're untrue, they're unloving. So when giving money or support to other ministries, we should ask, what do they believe? What do they affirm? Do they uh, fully and clearly affirm the apostles' teaching? Because if they don't, we shouldn't partner with them or support them. We must also ask, does our online activity promote the unity of love and truth? Certainly, we must take care that what we're saying on the internet is both loving and true, something that is challenging at times. But noting John's application, uh, we also need to take care in what we like, in what we retweet, in what we share, on the, on, uh, share online. If we're not to approvingly greet those who distort the teaching of Jesus, then I'm confident in saying that we should not give them a heart emoji either. Right? Don't further the platform to, uh, of those who distort the truth. So why does this matter? Right? The thought of drawing lines will probably weigh heavy on many of us. We fear the response we'll get. Our position will sometimes be very unpopular. We worry that by taking a stand, we will appear unloving regardless of our delivery of the truth or our intent behind speaking it. And so we need to ask ourselves, why does it matter? Right? Though truth and love are inseparably linked, why do we need to distinguish between truth and error like this? Why do we need to draw lines? Well, John gives us two reasons. The first reason to draw lines is a partnership to avoid. Because when we promote or support false teachers, we partner with them in their evil deeds. This is verse 11. Though maybe we're not writing the articles or giving the talks, we become complicit in a sense in their wickedness. Maybe you are not directly guilty of theological vandalism, but we've helped pay for the paint to do it. The second reason to draw these lines is because there's a reward to win. Watch yourselves, John says. 
Those who run beyond the apostolic teaching have departed from the truth of Christ. And those who depart from the truth of Jesus do not have God and do not have Christ. This is John's way of saying that if they, if, if they swerve from the truth, then they show themselves to be outside the sphere of God's grace, outside the sphere of God's saving activity. Maybe some of you remember the old uh, Looney Tunes cartoons. And maybe you can remember the, uh, the Roadrunner and, and Coyote cartoons. Right? These false teachers are sort of like the coyote in those, those cartoons. He'd be chasing after uh, Roadrunner and, and he would, uh, through some shenanigans of, of the, the, the Roadrunner, uh, he would run off a cliff without immediately recognizing it. And he'd be furiously pumping his, his legs for a, few, for a few moments until he realized that he was hanging in thin air and then he would come plunging to the ground. Right? And as kids, we'd laugh at that because, you know, Coyote got back up and it was just funny. But this is the tragedy of these deceivers and those under their influence. Right? Like Coyote, they've, they've left the solid ground of the apostles' teaching and they're tragically hanging in midair. And it might be a moment before they fall, but when they do, unlike the silly cartoon, there will be no getting back up, no do-over, right? only eternal destruction. And so John warns his hearers, do not follow such people. Do not give opportunity to such people. Do not support such people. Watch yourselves. Be on guard. John, as a pastor, he has labored for these people. He's given themselves for these people, we see in verse 8. And because he loves them, he is eager that they will obtain, uh, that they will remain in the truth so that they will obtain their full reward. And this is the reward that's held out. God himself This is the reward which God offers to his people in Christ in the gospel. Himself, the treasure of heaven, the author of life, the father of mercies, the wellspring of eternal glory, the one who makes the angels cover their faces. He gives us himself in the gospel. There is no greater gift that God could give. There's no better prize that he's holding off in the back somewhere. But here's how you get such a great reward. Abide in the gospel. Continue in the apostolic message concerning Jesus. Remain in it, verse 9. Don't go beyond it. There's no other way to this reward. Either we abide in the apostolic truth about Jesus or we do not. If we don't, we don't have God. If we do, we have the Father and the Son and life in them. Love has moved John to work for these saints. And love compels him to urge them to be clear about the truth so that they can remain in it. Because love wants the best for others, John wants these believers to be super glued to this truth about Jesus so that they will get their full reward. Because John loves him, he loves them, he wants them to walk in the truth. And so his love for them consists of a love for the truth and a willingness to, to, to draw lines, to distinguish truth from error. Beloved, in our day, we need to be willing to do the same thing. So John's message for us is this. Walk in love, walk in truth, and be careful not to separate the two. 
May God help us with it. Amen. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. God the Son, who's come and, and take on, taken on flesh, that as fully God and fully man, he might be our substitute, our ransom, our redeemer, the one who would reconcile us to you. And Lord, we thank you that now by grace, through faith, as we trust in Jesus, as we stand in Jesus, we have the promise that we will have you, that you will give yourself to us and, and in that we might experience eternal life. Lord, we thank you for the new life that we can have in Jesus, but Lord, we pray that as a result of that new life which is in us now already by your Spirit, that you would help us to walk in love and help us to walk in the truth. Lord, our tendency might be to separate them, to tilt toward one more than the other, but help us, Lord, to have the wisdom to know how to, to do both of these things well and at the same time. Lord, help us to to show great love for our brothers and sisters. Help us to care deeply about your commandments and help us, Lord, to be discerning and on guard that we might distinguish between truth and error. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'd ask uh, that you now arise as we sing our song of response, a song uh, celebrating uh, the, the apostolic teaching that, that God has become man, taken humanity to himself to save us. Let's sing together, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery.
Receive now the Lord's blessing. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen.